Hello, I'm George Alagaya and this is Migrants Mean Business. Migrants Mean Business is a new podcast series from the Migration Museum in association with Alliance Global Investors, featuring conversations with some of Britain's most successful business leaders, all of whom have immigrant backgrounds. Each episode explores their personal and professional stories, offering insights into how they built their businesses, the challenges they faced, and how being migrants has influenced their lives and careers. These conversations highlight how immigrants have helped to build modern Britain, a story which now, more than ever before, needs to be told. So, without further ado, let's dive in. Welcome to this, the latest in, in our series, Migrants uh, Mean Business, which is our way of um, exploring the contribution that migrants have made um, to this country, whether it's in the, in the boardroom or the cloakroom, whether it's in the, on the factory floor or the corner shop, migrants um, have helped to enrich this country. And these series of interviews are about trying to explore that, as I was saying. Now... When I was thinking about um, today's interview, it struck me that there are two kinds of business people. They're the ones who become synonymous with what they do, the Dysons and the, and the Joe Malones, perhaps, you know, and their names out there in the front. And then the other lot who, you know their brand, you know, you know their companies, but you don't really know much about the people behind them. And um, my guest today, if I may say so, is, belongs, I think, to that latter category. Um, one way or another, we will definitely have come across uh, his, 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 his bit, the businesses he's built up, but we don't know much about Lloyd Dorfman, the man. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Lloyd Dorfman. <laughs> Sir Lloyd Dorfman, I should say. Um, and the truth is, if you've travelled anywhere in the world in the, in the last sort of 30 years, you've almost certainly changed your money at one of his businesses. If you do the theatre and you've gone to the National Theatre, you will, of course, be aware that so many people now are able to go to that theatre and enjoy it because of Sir Lloyd's... Um, do you mind if I just call you Lloyd? Lloyd's fine. Lloyd's fine. Uh, because of Lloyd's, Lloyd's generosity. And there, there are lots of other things that he's done and achieved, which uh, we're going to try and uh, explore uh, this evening. So he will remain a mystery uh, no longer. So let's, so let's start, uh, Sir Lloyd. Um, where does your migrant journey, if I can put it that way, start? So I, I thought I'd better try and find out a bit about this before ahead of tonight. And <laughs> so I took my, my aunt, my late father's sister, out for lunch a few weeks ago. And apparently the, the Dorfman side of the family, so they, the Dorfmans were military tailors in, uh, in Russia in a town called Komunisk. And the story was... In 1901, they got tipped the wink that there was uh, a lot of stuff going to be happening in Vladivostok, because I think Russia was at war with, with Japan, and they were going to be required to move to Vladivostok, and they didn't want to go to Vladivostok. <laughs> so they, they decided to leave Russia and come to, uh, and come to London. Uh, that was in 1901. And that was my grandfather, my, gra my grandmother, paternal. my paternal... Uh, mother, uh, that family, she came from, that was the Landsmans, they came from Kiev, also around 1901. 
and they were, they were timber merchants in Kiev, and they were heading to the States. The boat stopped at London, in London, and my great-grandfather, uh, paternal, maternal great-grandfather, apparently got ill, and uh, he couldn't travel. Uh, he told his wife, you go with the others, I'll see you in the States. She wouldn't leave him, so they went to the States, she stayed here, wow. and that's how they came to be here, uh, and the others went off to the States. And my mother's side, all, they came from Poland, from a town called Bendeen, although my mother tells me it was called Benjean or something, but she didn't know much more about that. But that's so, Russia and Poland. So, so, you're, so you're what, third generation? Uh, yeah. Migrant. Do, yeah. You, do you, in your head, in your mind, do you think of yourself in any way as, as, as a migrant, an outsider? No, I mean, I, you know, I was, I was born, you know, in the Lindo wing of St Mary's Hospital uh, in Paddington. I, I don't think of myself as a migrant in, in, in the way that more recent uh, migrants would. But, uh, yeah, but at the end of the day, I'm sort of uh, very conscious and very proud of my Jewish heritage. You know, and the fact that, you know, my forefathers came back at, you know, the, at the turn of the 20th century. I've tried to, you know, create a bit of a legacy to the family. I mean, I asked this question because when we were talking earlier, you said to me, you know, I'm not like one of those, um, one of the Ugandan Asians who are fleeing Idi Amin, as if you felt that to be a migrant or to be classed a migrant, you, you had to sort of, you yourself had to flee something. Yeah, yeah. And, and you feel that. that do, you, do you think, when, when does one stop being a migrant then? Uh, I don't know, really. But, I mean, I mean, and it's interesting, and in fact, I think it was through, through the museum that um, I got sent a book of bloody foreigners, yeah. bloody foreigners. And you read this book... The, the author's here somewhere, I think. We'll all, right, all, right, all right, OK, well, I've given you a plug. Um, <laughs> And it's a great book. I mean, you know, you read this book and basically everybody comes from somewhere, you know, whether it's the sort of the Vikings, the Normans, you know, the Huguenots, you know, the Irish, the Italians, I mean, wave upon wave. Um, and, of course, we all come from somewhere. So, but, but do you think we, the British, understand ourselves as a country of migrants in the way in which... You mentioned Australia and America. I think... Um, I think people need to realise, and, and that's why I sort of, you know, applaud the initiative of the, Mig uh, the Migration Museum, because I think for people to understand, uh, to understand and to celebrate and to inform, you know, particularly the younger generation, exactly, you know, how we're made up, or how we're made up as a, as a population, I think is really important. I think people in terms of harmony within society, I think people would understand and respect it greater if they understood more about the origins. So, so we, we may not, then, as, 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 a, as a country, understand this idea that we all came from somewhere else. But in your travels, um, I suppose I'm asking you to rate Britain. I mean, how, how do we do for, for tolerance, for acceptance? Oh, I, think, I think we do better than most. I think we do, you know, I... You know, I've started businesses all over the world. You know, I, I've, uh, <laughs> you know, I've built a global foreign exchange business. Um, I, I built a successful business in the Gulf. Uh, and everywhere you go in the Gulf, you have to have a local partner. And I would always front up, by the way, just to, you know, 
few done so. I'm Jewish. I don't know if that's a problem, but if it's a problem, say so now. It was never a problem. You know, I was in, I was in, uh, I can't remember if it was in Sharjah or Dubai or somewhere just before Rosh Hashanah, uh, you know, one year. And as we finished the meeting, I walked out and this sheik turned around to me and said, you know, Happy New Year. <laughs> never been a problem. Uh, in fact, the only place that was a problem that I never got to set up a business in, in, in the Middle East was actually in Israel, <laughs> um, which, which, which I think was probably a blessing in disguise because uh, it was just always so difficult. You know, and every time we got a new ambassador in, 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 in London, you know, I, he'd take me aside and say, Lloyd, you know, why aren't you operating in Israel? I said, because I've tried, but it's too bloody difficult. And, and as I said, it's probably a blessing because you end up with three million partners and the rates will never be good enough and everyone will have known me and, and, and I probably, you know, it probably would have been too hard to earn a living. Um, so so for, for you, the Jewish identity is much more important than, than Poland or Russia, where your, your ancestors came from. What, what's it like at the moment to be Jewish in this country? It's incredible, really. I mean, in, so I'm deputy chairman of an organization called uh, the Community Security Trust, which has been going for sort of 40, 50 years in terms of fighting anti-Semitism. Uh, you know, that problem has morphed from going back in the day when it was a sort of far-right, you know, fascist sort of problem through to uh, Islamist, fundamentalist, terrorism today. Yes, you've still got elements of all that going on, but you know, who'd have thought in the 21st century that you know, we would pick up, you know, on across our media every single day, there will be, t you know, talk and discussion about anti-Semitism, not least because you know Her Majesty's opposition seems to be riddled with it, uh, and absolutely cannot convincingly demonstrate that they they really do concern enough, to, are concerned enough to deal with it. And yet, in general, though, you think Britain is, is, is tolerant um, and accepting of, of the people of the Jewish faith? Uh, I'd, I'd like to think so, but I, I'm troubled, and I think a lot of Jews are troubled, that who'd have thought in the 20... You know, as I said, in you know, 2019, that we would even have to think, read, even discuss, even to, even to have this on our minds. I mean, I don't want this to get into, uh, into an intensely kind of political five minutes, but, but what do you put that down to? I mean, is, is there, as ever, this, this kind of difficulty people have between distinguishing between the state of Israel and, 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 and the Jewish faith and people of the faith and the confusion between the two that because they disagree with one, they feel they disagree with the other? I think that's... Uh... An excuse given by those people who say, you know, that yes, well, you know, people, you know, it's, it's Israel, whatever. But yeah, look, nobody's nobody's saying that Israel is beyond criticism. You know, we all criticise Israel. You know, it's it, you don't have to agree with its political uh, decisions all the time. But it, you know, there is a sinister undertone to a lot of this, which ultimately permeates its way through to. Uh, through to an anti-Semitism that is very disturbing. And remember, you know, the Labour Party has for decades, generations, been the home of a huge amount of uh, Labour, uh, of Jewish community support. OK, we're gonna, I'm going to leave it there. Let's now delve in, as I said, to this, the making um, of, 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 this, of this man. The man who set up a, this huge um, business, Travelex. Education, was that important in, in, in t turning 
the young Dorfman into a business person? Yeah, it sort of helps to read and write. Um, and it, I sort of... You did more uh, than that. You went to St Paul's, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I went to St Paul's. So I, I, I was, you know, I got a reasonably good education. Uh, I was averagely middle of the road. I mean, that's, yeah, I think you had to be bright to sort of get there, but I was averagely middle of the road. And, you know, I, I failed economics A-level. I... I, um, uh, I, I I find I'm, I've been asked to give a talk to Haberdasher's school on Wednesday to their economics group, and I'm going to have to front up that I failed the economics level. So there is hope if you still, if you fail. Anyway, but, and, and, but I didn't go to university. In those days, I don't think a lot of people did, but it was not everybody. But originally, the plan was I was going to become a barrister. My parents thought yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd be a good thing to become a barrister. In those days, you could study at the bar without... without um, having gone to university, and so I, I joined Lincoln's Inn to eat my dinners and attend, uh, attend uh, uh, lectures, which I did. Studied the bar for a year, liked the bar, didn't like studying, always loved business, met my wife-to-be because her sister was a fellow student, and my then... We got married quite young, so, you know, I was, I was engaged at sort of 20. And then my future father-in-law was very involved in the city, and he said, look, if you're not happy doing what you're doing, why don't you come and work with me and get as much commercial experience in as short a time as possible? So I joined him in September 73 at the age of 21, and within so three months I was getting an absolute baptism of fire because of those of you who will remember that time, you know, we had, uh, you know, the quadrupling of the oil price overnight. So we went to bed one evening and the oil price was $6, if I remember rightly. And we all woke up the following morning to be told by the Arab world that the new price was $24. Uh, and you can imagine the sort of economic shock that that generated across markets all over the world. So we had a collapse of the property market, collapse of the stock market, collapse of banks, Bank of England trying to hold the whole thing together. Sounds familiar, a bit familiar. familiar story. <laughs> um, but as a sort of, you know, I was an assistant to one of the directors and it was an incredible apprenticeship. You know, and I would go into meetings where not only the borrowers, uh, the bank borrowers were, also, were in trouble, but the banks were in trouble. And, and it, was, it was an amazing, amazing apprenticeship. I want to take you back to this question of university. I mean, we're constantly being told that what Britain needs, and perhaps now more than ever, if, if Brexit happens, we need the wealth makers. Um, do you think there's been too much emphasis on university and that perhaps actually something different to, uh, for, for kids after school may create more wealth makers? I suppose I'm a sort of living testimony to it. You know, not going to university is not the end of the world. And also, I suppose you have to ask yourself, you know, to take that on and end up with a whole pile of debt, you know, is that the best way to spend three years of your life when you might actually pursue something slightly more vocational? And to your, to your question, yes, I think uh, something else. But, but is that something else there? That's the point. I mean, so you can have the view that, OK, university may not be the best preparation to go into business to make money, uh, to create wealth. But are we offering something good in, as an no, alternative? I no. no, I mean, I think there are... I want to say, I know Kenneth Baker is chairs or leads an organisation that promotes vocational... I don't know who I'm looking at here, but... The former education secretary? Yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, so there is an attempt, but I think it's... We should put more emphasis on it. Um, I think the Germans have a system um, of sort of apprenticeships. 
uh, where where that that that's been mu much more successful and widely widely used. I mean, you sit on Sadiq Khan, the mayor's London yeah. mayor's um, advisory board, business advisor. Do you tell him this? No, but it's a good point. I'll tell you. <laughs> Um, so, um, you've had this baptism of fire, and you decide, you know, the, the yeah. city is not for you, the bar's not for you, though you've, you've, you've landed yourself with an amazing woman, so that at least you didn't, that wasn't totally wasted. Um, and, 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 then, and then you decide to go in to business on your own, yeah. to make money, as you put it, I think, yeah. somewhere. And, and the business you decided was, was changing money, bureau yeah. de charge. And I just need you to explain to people here, some of us will remember, but lots won't, this was a time when we couldn't take money out, could we? No, so, so look, firstly, just to say, I came to realise quite, you know, early on in life that it was better to have money than not to have money. And it was certainly more important, it was important to me. And, you know, I obviously wasn't going to be a professional or anything. So, and I always loved business. I used to read the business pages, the newspapers before I read the sports pages. And my dream was always to have my own business. I didn't know what, I didn't know how, where. So the time came, kind of long story short, for me to think about doing that. You know, it was 1976, coming into the Queen's Silver Jubilee year of 1977. Lots of tourists due to come to London. And I decided I would set up, uh, you know, a small money-changing business, took a shop in Southampton Road near the British Museum. And to your point, for those of you who, were, who, who don't remember or, or weren't around, uh, we had exchange control in those days. Uh, you weren't allowed to take more than 50 pounds per person, per trip. You had a little white sticky form at the back of your passport. The banks had to mark that and write 50 pounds, etc. This world, this market was dominated by some of the largest and oldest financial organizations uh, in the world. Tax rates were 68, 83, 98, sometimes 102 percent. Uh, we were the sick man of Europe. There was the English disease uh, and a brain drain. And Lloyd Dorfman thought he'd start up a new business. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think there was already talk of the possibility of a common European currency. Uh, and, you know, when you, sometimes you can think too hard about this stuff. And it's sort of, a, you know, I just wanted to have my own business and I would do this. And I didn't know there was no strategy document. There was no business plan. I didn't have any money. I had to borrow the money to start the business. And, you know, some... some Wait, actually, I, I think you're getting quite too fast here because you, you didn't have any money and you had to borrow money. And I did the calculation. I think you, um, you borrowed 25,000 in 1976 yeah. money. That's about 200 grand now. Okay. If in today's money, you've got, you know, you were backing yourself on. That's a massive amount of debt to take. I found, <laughs> I found, chatting to someone who I didn't think, I wasn't expecting him to say this at the time, because he was in the property business, and the property business was going through a very difficult time. He said he would lend me the 25000 for 50% of the business. So, you know, I wasn't sort of, I had nothing to mortgage. So, I mean, there was, but he, so he, put up the money and became 50% part. And I, I bought him out three years later. What is it you think you had then? I mean, how old were you at this stage? In your 20s? I was 24. 24. You're borrowing 200 grand, the equivalent of. What is it? What go, what's going on in Lloyd Dorfman's mind? I mean, you know, we're trying to find out what, what makes a business person. Some people would have said, you're mad. Yeah. Um, yeah. Including my my my, my then father-in-law, well, so my late father-in-law. He was always my father-in-law, uh, but he thought I was crazy. 
But I look, you know, I I always I told you I always wanted to try and have my own business, and I thought I'd rather try and fail than never to have tried at all. And it was you know, not just 24, but you know, I was married. We had our eldest daughter. Uh, you know, I was neck high in responsibilities and liabilities. Uh, but you know, I thought I'd give it a go and. You know, sometimes I get asked to talk about entrepreneurship and things. And yes, of course, making money is important. As I said, it was important to me at the time. But also, being an entrepreneur, you know, you're sort of, you're also in control of your own destiny. You know, you are, can boldly go where no one's ever thought to boldly go before. And yes, the money is important. But also, you know, at the end of the day, it may not be the biggest ship and it may not be the fastest ship, but it's your bloody ship, right? And that's, you know... For me, that was important. What is that magic ingredient? I mean, we've got politicians today, you know, we've got, as you know, uh, election going on, and one or two of them just sit there and say, you know, I'm an entrepreneur, as if that explains everything, and they'll be able to sort the world out. I mean, what is it? What is the Dorfman touch? <laughs> so I, I think, look, you know, if, if I think back, obviously it was ambition, persistence, uh, you know, time and time again, you know, as I look, as I tried to build this business, you know, I came up, up against formidable competition, large, entrenched operators, not just actually at the beginning, in the early days of building the, the, the business here in the UK, but as I went around the world, you know, we, we faced the local huge banks who'd been doing this for, de for generations. Often we'd have to work with the regulators to change the regulation. And I sort of, I suppose it was persistence, um, the knowledge that I was confident about the, sub you know, the business that I was involved in. This was for the big banks, you know, a non-core activity which they operated to service their, their business, to service their, uh, their clients. And I would often say that crumbs from their table were banquets for us. I talk about the, the airline industry, uh, and you talked about Stelios, the previous speaker, but, you know, back in the day, I mean, yeah, the, the, big, the national airlines would struggle, struggle to break even on their short-haul routes, which they saw as important because they were feeders for their long-haul routes, which is where they made the money, etc. But they struggled at best to break even. You take those short-haul routes out of a great big national infrastructured airline and you make them a standalone focused business and you end up with an EasyJet and a Ryanair who are making more money today than British Airways ever did. Uh, and in, in a smaller way, taking that non-core service and taking on the banks who were never going to deploy their best people uh, to run it, you know, we, this was our focus. We, we ate and slept and dreamt this business. Today, you'd be called a disruptor. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't have been then. We didn't use that word. But, I mean, is, is there a rebel in there behind the suits, you know? Re the... <laughs> uh, I've been called many things. I've never been called a rebel. But, but I suppose in, back in those <gasps> did, days... Did the banks represent a kind of authority? Yeah, that I you... mean, we, 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 were, we were the young upstarts. I mean, you know, when we won our first ever airport contract, which was at Heathrow's then brand new Terminal 4. And this is massive, wasn't it? Big this break. was huge. And I bet the business. I mean, you know, we, this was the first time the then unprivatised British Airports Authority at any of their airports, let alone their Heathrow, had ever appointed anyone other than a clearing bank. 
So I'd, I'd bet the business there were those people at the BAA who'd been deemed to have nailed their colours to our mast, and there were those people at the BAA waiting in the wings with the I told you so's. So it was, you know, it was a huge gamble. Now, one of the things, looking back at your, your time at Traveller, which you've since um, divested yourself of, um, you never diversified. I mean, you stayed with, with the Bureau de Change, uh, uh, I, I think. Am I, am I right, firstly? Not quite. No? Uh, I mean, most people know us because that's the business they see, the retail foreign exchange business. But we, you know, I also built and created a huge uh, commercial payments business. We were the world's largest non-bank provider of commercial payments, competing against the banks. Uh, we also had a big outsourcing business. So all the high street banks in this country, uh, all if you go into a branch of any of the banks to either buy foreign currency or to exchange it, Travelex services all the branch networks. So th th this is stuff that goes on behind that, that the consumers wouldn't see, but there were other dimensions to the, to the, uh, to the business. And I, I just felt it was important that, that I, the business was broadened not only geographically, but also by business streams as well. In the end, you, you, you sold up, yeah. essentially. Um, why did you do that? Because some, some people might be tempted to hand it down, the generations hang on and still do it. Good question. So I was never into dynasties. I mean, so dynasties come and dynasties go, and you have to hope that each generation, A, they want it, B, they're up to it, and C, something doesn't come out of left field to blow them away. Through various opportunities over time, you know, the business grew, and... In 2004, five, I, I was still sitting on, I still had one big egg and one big basket. I still owned 63% of this business, which by that time had taken over its largest competitor, Thomas Cook's financial services business, which was four times our size, had been going for 160 years, and we bought it for 440 million pounds. And I didn't have the money, and we'd never bought a business for 44 million pounds, 140 million pounds, and it turned out okay. And I still own 63% of the business. And, and I remember, you know, my late father, to whom I was very close, you know, always said to me, don't fall in love with your business. Don't fall in love with your business. It's a business. And I thought that it was important from the family's point of view that I should take a slice of the egg out of that basket. And to cut a long story short, ended up doing a, deal, a private equity deal and went from being the controlling shareholder, the chairman and chief executive, to being the second largest shareholder with 30% and just the chairman. And, you know, I stayed with it. And yes, I was concerned about it. And gradually, you know, those of you who've been involved in private equity will know that once you take private equity shilling, you know at some point there's going to be an exit. And in a funny sort of way, and it comes back to my comment before about not the biggest ship, not the fastest ship, but it's your bloody ship. It sort of was no longer my ship anymore. <coughs> You know, I did have a, a big stake, and I knew that at some point something that we would sell it. So I stepped back and mentally started to prepare for the next stage of my career life, having been 35 years mono-focused on building this one business. And what it's allowed you to do is your philanthropy, um, what you've done with the wealth that, that you have amassed. And I was just looking at some of the things, the National Theatre, the Royal Opera House, you set up the Bridge Theatre with others, yep. the first theatre of scale in London for God knows how many years. I mean, there's a kind of theme there, the arts, and I, and I wondered why that is so important uh, to you. 
just the, the, the Bridge Theatre is actually a commercial theatre yeah. that came off the back of my relationship with Nick Heitner. Uh, yes, I mean, look, you know, I think if you're fortunate enough to make money at any level, at any level, you know, it's, at, it's important to give something back. I think there's this great saying Albert Einstein said that, you know, it's incumbent upon every man to give back into this world at least the equivalent of what he takes out. And I think certainly within, you know, within our community, there's something in our DNA where absolutely, you know, there's an important when part. When you say our community, the so Jewish, Jewish community. Jewish yeah. community, yeah, important part of what we do, not only in terms of looking after ourselves, uh, because back in the day, you know, there were the Jewish soup, ki- soup kitchens and all the old charities that looked after the immigrants when they first arrived in, uh, in, in East End. I think to help you know, the wider community and society I mean, I'm not slavishly obsessed with the arts. I love the arts. I think they're very important. You get drawn to the areas that you want to support and that you're interested in and the organisations you believe in and the people that you have faith in and that, that you, know, you want to back them and develop them. It's, I, I often say that I don't want to over-intellectualise this stuff and it's a journey. You know, I can't produce for you a great strategy. There's no stuff. sense in which, I mean, the arts feeds into a nation's soul. I mean, you've done the money bit, you've enriched it, you've paid your taxes and so on. And, and yeah. was there a sense in which you wanted to do this other side of it, uh, of nation building? It wasn't an intellectual logic like that. It was, you know, I like the, I like the arts world. I came to know people in it. I came to do the Travelix cheap ticket season with the National Theatre. That was a... My whole relationship with the National Theatre started over a conversation over dessert at a dinner party. Mm-hmm. And from that stupid conversation was born the Travel X Cheap ticket season, which went on for 16 years. I then joined the board. I then ended up supporting this capital campaign and ended up with the theatre. So, and that began with that conversation. I didn't know back in, this, in 2003 with that conversation that that was going to happen. We've supported things at Great Ormond Street. We do things, obviously, across the Jewish community at the Royal Opera House. My wife, she's a big supporter and very much enjoys uh, dance. She's, a, a vice, she's the vice chairman of the Royal Ballet School. But one of the most interesting things that, that we've done, which was very unexpected, was you know, we also supported the recent uh, building project at Westminster Abbey. I saw that, yes. And this was something that somebody asked me to come and see it. And I remember that morning, you know, my wife said to me, what are you doing today? And I said, I'm going to look at Westminster Abbey. And she said, what are you going to look at that for? And I said, well, I don't know. I'm going to go and have a look at it. And I came back and I said, you know, it's really interesting because this was the first building project at Westminster Abbey for 275 years. And they were building a tower up the Parliament side of the building. It's called the Triforium Tower which actually is a a staircase and a lift, which takes people up to the first floor of the abbey, which sits 90 feet above the the abbey floor, which they opened last year as the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Galleries, from which they display all the artefacts of Westminster Abbey that nobody ever gets to see. So I said to my wife that day, I said, you know, this is quite interesting. I said, remember, it's not any old church. It's our national church. It's the seat of the coronation of our kings and queens. And don't think church, think museum. And the interesting thing is, this was, a, this was a 24 million pound building project. There were about 30 donors. And of the 30 donors, there were six Jewish families who had supported this project. And the tower goes up and obviously it punches through into the, in, through into the wall of the abbey. And the little 
passageway that comes from the tower, which is going from here to that wall, is sort of glass either side. And on these glass windows either side are little sort of glass-stained window um, panels with the name of each of the donors. So just coming back to immigrant roots, and, you know, this is yeah. quite special, particularly Jewish immigrant roots. This is in Westminster Abbey. And about two years before it was opened, I was there one early Friday morning uh, for a foundation stone-laying ceremony at the Prince of Wales, who was the patron of the campaign, was coming to do this. And, um, and there's about 20 of us there. It was in December, and I'm walking through Westminster Abbey with one of my fellow Jewish donors, who's actually a bit older than me, and we're walking through the Abbey and we're joking to each other, you know, what are two nice Jewish boys walking through Westminster Abbey for, you know, and, and, and then he sort of stopped me and he said, you know, Lloyd, he said, I think it's really important that we do this because he said, I see this as a way of saying thank you to this country who opened its arms to our forefathers and gave them an opportunity in an open and free democratic society to make of their lives what they will. And you know, this was you know, a really special thing to do. And you know, today I get invited to, I mean, Julian knows, but I mean, I've come to know that he's just retiring, but the Dean of Westminster Abbey, I get invited to services at Westminster Abbey. And a couple of services ago, I went, I was there and I was sitting next to some people in the chorister's uh, seat. And this man turned around and he said, yeah, you come to the Abbey often. I said, no, not really. I said, because I'm Jewish. Oh, right. <laughs> Thank you very much. I'm going to open this out um, to the floor now. Um, let's go to the gentleman here first. We may be on the verge of Facebook's Libra, the first truly international currency. Would your entrepreneurial nose now, in the light of current circumstances, steer your way from what you did then, some 50-odd years ago, and without asking you to disclose too many trade secrets, what do you think is the next really entrepreneurial advance that's going to be made in not just this country, but the world? Okay, so if I was starting the business today, yeah, I mean, I would be more wary about going into the business I went into. I mean, interestingly enough, the volume of foreign ca of cash in the system worldwide continues to grow. But as a percentage of the total payment system, it's reducing. So this probably is somewhat of a role. But today, I don't think, it, it, long term, it's probably not the, the, the writing's on the wall. I like the market. Do you believe that people are going to continue to travel you know, and there's going to be an exponential growth in travel, more people traveling more often? Yes. Uh, in terms of international alternative systems of currency, I do have a fundamental problem with currency systems or systems of value that are not overseen by central banks or by governments. Uh, and I think that is... I actually said this to Mark Carney... Uh, As one at, does. At a cocktail party. <laughs> uh, and it troubles me. And so I think you know, all this Bitcoin and crypto this and crypto that and, and now this Libra... The only thing that I think we have to be wary of, and this is a matter for the regulators, is that this is Facebook. So this is not some geeky guy coming out of a garage and wanting to call it Zing Zang Zong or, or whatever they'll call it. This is Facebook who has, you know, a client base, a customer base of two billion. So they can sort of make things work. 
The question is whether the, whether the consumer will find it convenient enough and will trust it enough. And I think one of the problems the regulators have generally, you know, is, we, is we've seen the explosion of social media and they still haven't got their heads around quite how to control this. The digital social media world is expanding faster than the regulators are realising they've got to cope with. So the, the currency issue is, is, a, is part of a much bigger issue. Uh, and the next big thing? And the next big thing, I don't know, I have to think about it. Uh, I mean, I'm involved, you know, I'm involved in all sorts of different businesses. I, you know, I ha I'm building a group of media-related businesses with my son because you know, there's a wall of money looking to create content. I have a business in the sort of click-and-collect space. Do we think online shopping is going to grow? Yes, we do. I'm trying to find a way to make money from that. Uh, I have a, an interest in a revolutionary oil technology business, which is another opportunity. So, I mean, these are things that we're pursuing. There is one thing. It may not be the next big thing, but I, you have this office group, the office group, yeah. which is shared, shared workspaces. But there's something interesting you've said about that, which is now the big guys want to be with the little guys because the creativity is going on with, in, in the, with the little guys. Yeah. And I wonder if, if that kind of synergy is something that, that we're going to see more of. Well, I think you're seeing it. Um, and, you know, I, I, I came, I got involved, I came late to the property business uh, and I got involved in this, discovered this flexible co-working office space and bought a business that had been founded by two really great guys uh, in 2010. We actually sold it to Blackstone two years ago, but I still have a 10% shareholding in it. And, you know, it's become absolutely accepted form of tenure and the big property companies who used to be quite sniffy about it are now getting it to themselves. Big corporates want to be near the, the young, you know, the young guys because they want the energy and the vibe. This sector is here to stay. But I can't, you know, I, I haven't come up with the seawater to gold bars uh, <laughs> suggestion. What moved me the most, I think, in your conversation was the question, when do you stop being a migrant? But I think that the idea of the Migration Museum is um, absolutely needs to be central and to be supported. And there are all these individual, very small efforts. We need to work together and find a way for getting, motivating at least, all the people. Yeah. Yeah. But, but at, least, at least the, you know, the journey has been started. Yes. You know, so, you know, I applaud the efforts of the Migration Museum and, as I said earlier, to, to inform and to celebrate our roots is really important. And remember, you know, let's not forget, you know, our royal family, you know, were Germans. You know, they came from you know, the Hanoverians, you know, that's where the Georges came from. That was the root of our royal family. So everybody, even up there, came from somewhere. I want to get some insight into you as a philanthropist. Yeah. So when you talk about supporting Westminster Abbey, how do you make a decision between those individual human stories, or you know, those things, and the bigger sort of projects? Those causes we've talked about, some, you know, some people might label them establishment causes, you know, the National Theatre, the Royal Opera House, and so on. And I think this question is asking about the little things that go on, I mean, including things like the Migration Museum, but the smaller people-oriented organisations. I mean, they're all, you know, they're all incredibly worthy causes. I mean, you know, I, and I'm not, you know, these are not, I'm not saying these are more important than, than those. There are people who are close to those communities who should be supporting them. Why wouldn't they?
Is there a problem finding those people? I think there is actually a problem. I think the big causes, the big theatres, I mean, there's, there's London versus the regions. I mean, you go to sort of Bradford or somewhere like that and, and talk to them about how difficult it is to get money in the regions for the arts, which you support. And there is an issue. And whether people like you are drawn to, to these big establishment causes and, 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 and the, the, the smaller causes really, really have to fight hard when they're doing great work on the ground. Yeah. Uh, as I explained to some of you earlier, I began the day talking to the Claw Leadership Group. So this is a group of about 25 uh, people from all different arts organisations across the country who come for a... And they do a, a fellowship which lasts on and off for about a year. And I, speak, I spoke to them this morning. And I got a similar question about, you know, London, 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 and, you know, we're in the, the provinces and nobody supports the provinces. Yeah, and I said, look, you know, I... And I understand, the, why do you only support London? I said, because I was born in London, I live in London, London is where I go, right? Um, but I happen to know, because one of my other hats, you know, I, I've chaired, I've been involved with Prince's Trust for a number of years, I chaired Prince's Trust in the UK, I now chair Prince's Trust internationally. Prince's Trust operates around the country. And there are some incredibly generous people who give money to help young people, disadvantaged, vulnerable young people, get into some form of education, training or employment all over the country to help those regions and areas. And I said to the guys this morning, and I'm saying today, that you need to find those people in the community who should, I hope, feel some sort of obligation and desire to support their communities, and, should, and they should do that. I actually just have a question around the importance of this conversation now. So... Clearly, we're at a time where global migration is at its all-time high. The global refugee population has just passed 70 million for the first time. Uh, and I wanted to know your thoughts on the importance of entrepreneurship within that conversation and the role that it has to play in, and ultimately how we make that argument more powerful and more persuasive for those who need to listen to why migrant entrepreneurship is so powerful. So, look, you know, I think it's an economic fact of life that uh, immigration not just in this country, but in every country, is it becomes a very powerful force in, in terms of the economic wealth that, they, that in the immigrant communities end up generating. For any country to be able to cope with, this, with its problems and to help those people who need help, you need to grow the cake. You can't just keep slicing up the same cake in ever smaller pieces and hope that's gonna work, because it doesn't. Russia tried it. Right, they had food queues. China tried it, you know, in their own... When Mao, you know, took the Chinese off in their 40-year diversion, and it was only when they came back and started to embrace their version of capitalism that they suddenly re-emerged to become the economic force they were. So, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, communism has tried it in various forms, and it's not worked. At the end of the day, you know, capitalism and growing the cake and the most uh, energetic and ambitious people to fuel the growing of that cake are more often than not the immigrant communities. What about the companies that grow the cake but don't pay their taxes? Because it seems to be a pattern now, doesn't it? I mean, with some of the big companies that, that in, 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 the, in the information age. Yeah, yeah, I mean, what do you want me to say? I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, it, I think it's, it's absolutely wrong. I think, again, it's an illustration of how governments and regulators are trying to still get their head around, you know, the... the what the social media businesses are all getting up to, getting up to, 
Uh, and I think it's, it's wrong. I mean, you know, you live, you operate and you derive profits and success from a country wherever you operate. You should pay your tax in those countries. Lloyd, I'm just intrigued whether you think you could have done as well in another industry. I happen to know that when you opened your shop near um, the British Library, there was a joke shop next door with another entrepreneur. I'm sitting next to him. Um, could you have made as much a success selling jokes as you did selling foreign <laughs> currency? Were you ever tempted? Well, that's an interesting question, Nick. Um, <laughs> It wasn't, wasn't an industry I was particularly attracted to, um, and not least when I came to know the, uh, the individual himself. <laughs> I wasn't going to become a competitor of his. Um, no, I mean, I hope that... I, you know, most people think I said... That mo I think I said it earlier. Most people think I was a currency expert. I was never a currency expert. You know, Travelex went from the one, one shop and became a business worth a billion pounds. You know, the office group was a property business that... Uh, yeah, well, we did we did the deal at forty-two million pounds, and when we sold it to Blackstone, it was worth five half a billion pounds. You know, there are other businesses that we're try I'm trying to build and develop. You know, not every day is, is, is a success. And one of the great pleasures that I have today, because I don't want to run anything anymore, but you know, I like being involved in all these different businesses. I've I've created, built, and run a global operationally intensive business. I've done stuff, I know stuff, I've had problems, I've had aggravation. And, you know, when I sit down with the youngsters whose businesses we're involved with today, you know, I said, look, you know, I'm here for you. A problem for you is a problem for me. How can I help? And that's sort of, you know, one of the ways that I'm using my experience to, to pay back. All right, I'm going to call down. I know there were hands up, but we've we run right, right out of time. And I know you've got another thing to go to. <laughs> and, and just on the, on the question of what else you do, I should have said you've been a great supporter of the Migration Museum and long may you remain. So, Lloyd Dorfman, thank you very much. I'm George Alagaya, and you've been listening to Migrants Mean Business, a new podcast series from the Migration Museum in association with Allianz Global Investors. Subscribe to Migrants Mean Business wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss out. You can find out more about future episodes and give us your comments and feedback by visiting migrationmuseum.org or getting in touch with us on social media. We're at Migration UK on Twitter and Migration Museum UK on Facebook and Instagram. Or you can come and visit us and check out our exhibitions and events at our current venue on Lambeth High Street in London. Migrants Mean Business was produced and edited by David Craigie, who also made the theme music. Thank you to Allianz Global Investors for sponsoring the series. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.